Hello and welcome to another episode of Professors at Work, a weekly podcast from the American University of Beirut, where we talk with scholars and professors about their research, why they're doing it, what they're finding, and what it means uh, for the rest of us. I'm Rami Khoury, your host, and uh, I'm delighted to have this week as our guest, uh, Associate Professor of Economics, Nisreen Salti. Welcome, Nisreen. Thank you for the invitation, Rami. Uh, glad to have you. Uh, Nisreen, you've worked a lot over the years on issues that all kind of uh, revolve around the common theme of inequality and disparity and marginalization, uh, health, uh, food insecurity, refugees. So tell us, what is your focus right now? What are you working on uh, now and why did you pick that topic? So for a few years now and uh, as part of a larger ongoing project, I am involved with a number of other professors at AUB, actually. So Dr. Jad Shaban and Dr. Hala Ghattas, so in agriculture and in health sciences, on a large-scale project evaluating programs of social assistance to Syrian refugees of Lebanon. Mm-hmm. And um, the specific programs that we're interested in looking at the impact of is a program of cash assistance. Right? So it's social assistance in the form of these monthly cash allowances that are given to vulnerable households among the Syrian refugee population. And Uh they are generally operated by large agencies, the World Food Program, the Higher Commissioner for Refugees, other agencies, other NGO partners. And um, we're interested in looking at the impact of these programs for a number of reasons. One of them is, of course, this is um, of material importance. This makes we need to know whether this makes a difference to the well-being, to the livelihood, to the opportunities of beneficiary households, because it is a human issue, right? I mean, a humanitarian mm-hmm. issue as well. Mm-hmm. But from a larger policy perspective, these are programs that have gained a lot of popularity over the last few years in development for decades and in humanitarian work more recently. And so these are programs that are very common that um, have been garnering um, more and more resources and therefore knowing whether they work, how well they work, where they work best is um, of policy importance to the general policy community, not Mm -hmm. just in the context of Syrian refugees in Lebanon, but also in the context of Syrian refugees elsewhere, in the context of other such programs, even when they don't involve refugees, when they involve other vulnerable populations or other marginalized groups. Um, So this modality of trying to provide social assistance through cash through mm-hmm. monthly cash installments rather than setting up a whole infrastructure and a bureaucracy of social assistance through other formats or providing services or um, other ways of assistance is um, worth being evaluated at this juncture. And so that's what we've mm-hmm. devoted a lot of our time recently to trying to understand. These kinds of programs have been around for some years now in different parts of the world. Um, is there not enough evidence from other countries to answer these questions, or is each of these uh, cash assistance uh, social protection programs uh, locally uh, 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 grounded, that the conditions in each country means it works somewhere and doesn't work somewhere else? Why do you need to do another assessment if we've had so many of these over the years that we, you'd think we'd know by now if they're uh, feasible or not? So that's an excellent question. Um, 
yes, ha they have been around for a while and they have been evaluated. Part of the answer to my question is, of course, there is a specificity to the context, to the location. There's also been work done and evaluating these programs, but we don't have answers to some of the more intricate questions related to the duration of the program, the intensity of the assistance. Does it make mm -hmm. a difference if we uh, decide to support with larger grants a smaller mm -hmm. number of people, or should we spread the assistance to the largest possible population of beneficiaries with potentially smaller allowances? So right. the, the, um, there are these intricate questions that are still not very clearly answered, but more importantly, I think the, the challenge here for the analyst, the challenge for the social scientist, is that evaluating these programs is often tricky because we, they are programs that are designed to be targeting the most vulnerable. Mm -hmm. And so if we want to know whether the program itself, strictly speaking, has been effective, what we need to be able to do is to track the development outcomes, the well-being indicators, all other metrics that we're interested in, on, interested in improving, we need to be able to track them for those beneficiaries before the existence of the cash assistance program and mm -hmm. after, and to try to see, to try to tease out of this evolution, what could be due to the program. The problem mm -hmm. is often before a year has gone by or some significant amount of time have gone by, we really uh, don't see an effect. Um, and mm -hmm. of course, it's not fair to expect an effect after a month or two months of being enrolled in a program. So typically, we have to wait for a year of a program being in place before we're able to reasonably um, go out and evaluate it. The problem is a lot happens in a year. And so we have this methodological challenge, which is, if we look at beneficiaries before the existence of a program and a year into a program, how can we reasonably attribute to the program itself, to the cash assistance only, uh, developments in their well-being indicators, developments in their socioeconomic outcomes, whether it's mm -hmm. in the labor market or in health or in education or in uh, you know, maternal health, child mortality, food security, et cetera. Mm -hmm. How can we reasonably say this part of the improvement or this part of the evolution in their indicators is strictly due to the program? That's where mm -hmm. the challenge lies. Because the problem is a lot of time goes by and because we are specifically targeting the, the most vulnerable, if we compare their outcomes to a population that wasn't in the program, then we're practically comparing apples to oranges because right. the reason they're in the program is because we think that they are especially vulnerable. Right. And so the, the, the real contribution, I think, from a methodological point of view of what we've been doing is that we have been trying to adapt these tricks, these methodological techniques that actually do allow us to tease out an effect that we can reasonably argue is causal, is not due to anything but the program. Right. And I can talk a little bit more about that methodology because the, the, the nice thing about it is it's quite technical, but it's also very intuitive. And so that's what mm -hmm. we've been doing with the specific population of Syrian refugees in Lebanon.
Yes. Uh, we don't need to get too much into the methodological uh, economics of it, uh, mm -hmm. which, in which I would get completely lost. But it is, <laughs> it is important. Uh, but tell us, uh, w w what is the consequence of this pioneering work that you've done now in applying this methodology? Have you, uh, do you feel that you're able to isolate the impact of the cash transfers from other conditions in the lives of refugees to determine if this program actually is successful? So we have, uh, I think, been able to identify the causal impact of those specific programs that we've been looking at. And they've been programs that are year-long programs that involve a monthly cash installment to beneficiary households. And we've also been able to examine questions related to duration of the program, but also, and this is of prime importance for programming on the ground, for actual policy work, for the, the, the dirty work in the field, right. which is what happens, and this is something that comes up all the time for all sorts of programs that look like this one, what happens when a household is no longer eligible? have do these benefits that we do see, and as you say, there is a wide literature documenting that there, we can expect to see some benefits. Do these benefits that we reap while a family, while a household is enrolled in a program, do they just disappear once they drop out of our program because they're no longer eligible or because we somehow lost touch or unable to reach them anymore or because we've lost our funding and we're unable to give that support? What happens then? Do we, do we lose all the dividends? Or do they mm -hmm. persist? And, and understanding this can help us, one, preserve these dividends to the extent that, that we can, or do we understand the mechanism, what makes us lose any of the traction that we had while the families were on the program, but also try to determine the timing and what are the outcomes that are more resistant to stopping this assistance and what are the outcomes that can persist? And here, I, I think these kinds of questions are um, of direct importance to those policymakers on the ground making designing these programs into understanding what the co what the real costs are of applying these administrative rules that sometimes will mm -hmm. have families drop out of a pool of, of beneficiaries uh, without much heed partly mm -hmm. because of the, partly because the program consoles itself by saying but we're including somebody else right. what do you want to do with the benefits that you've been investing in, in for a year that you now are at risk of losing yeah, and we know from experience in the Middle East, uh, the last uh, 55 years of uh, 70, 80 years of Palestinian <laughs> refugees getting assistance from UNRWA and other humanitarian agencies, and uh, recently the Syrian, there was Iraqi refugees around the region who were assisted. We know that uh, donors, even you know, well-funded international agencies, sometimes run out of money, and uh, right. therefore they cut back. Uh, the aid that they give, whether it's direct cash or health benefits or education. Um, so what is your work telling you about ways to design programs to minimize those uh, impacts of the drop in aid or cutting off the aid completely when it happens? So some of these benefits are in and of themselves extremely time sensitive so that I'll give you a few examples. We find, for instance, um, and this is work in progress, but hopefully you'll be out very, very soon. We find mm -hmm. that um, for beneficiary households that have young children in them, there is an effect, an, a, a, a significant and causal effect of being in these programs on reducing the risk of child labor. Mm -hmm. So that is 
of huge importance because we know there is a, a very wide literature on the enormous costs later in life of having been forced to engage in child labor as a child. And these yes. are costs that will persist for decades for that family, for that household, but also transmit to the next generation. Right. So if we're able to critically, for a period, protect a household from the risk of child labor through these programs, then that is going to have, even if, so if, we've, if we're past that risky window mm -hmm. of child labor, then if we interrupt the, the assistance after that, we've already reaped, we've already protected that family from a lifetime of exposure mm -hmm. to um, vulnerability, to shocks, to deprivation, etc. We find the same on the risk of child marriage or early marriage. Um, mm -hmm. which we're going to define as uh, marriage. Uh, what we're looking at is the age group 15 to 18, especially for young girls. And again, we find a reduction in the risk of early marriage for girls. And again, that's a relatively small window. So yeah. if we're able to make sure that during that risk, risky period, we're able to deter some of or, or reduce some of the incentives that are pushing these families to that coping mechanism, then hopefully we have, again, secured some of these dividends for a very long time. And again, there is a very wide literature on the extensive and very long-term costs to the health, to the, uh, to the well-being, to the labor market outcomes of a girl who is exposed to early marriage, and again, mm -hmm. to the intergenerational <clears throat> transmission of deprivation that results from that institution. Yeah, one of the fascinating things uh, that comes out of the work uh, by many people on um, um, inter, uh, multi-dimensional poverty surveys, uh, they're finding that the, um, the poverty of young kids in early childhood, say up to the age of seven or eight or something like that, if you're deprived at that age, you're probably going to be deprived for the next couple of generations, This what you call the intergenerational. Uh, so this is a huge... Uh, issue because you're not just helping the family right now, you're maybe reducing the rate of poverty and, and vulnerability and marginalization uh, for generations to come. Absolutely. Absolutely. So that then um, the interruption of service may, of course, or of assistance rather, may of course come with uh, costs on many of the outcomes that we are interested in preserving, but these are critical outcomes. And, and, and if we can focus and make sure that for those years of exposure to this type of risk, we're able to do what we can to reduce exposure to that risk, then, right. as you say, the, the benefits that we're reaping are for several generations. Does this raise the possibility that uh, people who are designing these uh, social protection and social assistance programs, that maybe they should focus more on these groups? So older people in their 50s and 60s, you can help them with food and basic medicine and stuff like that. But these younger people, targeted aid uh, to them uh, is going to have a much more uh, powerful impact over many years and many generations. Do you think that this is one of the possibilities that people might be looking at to adjust how these uh, programs target the beneficiaries? Um, very likely, uh, particularly since right now, often the selection criteria or the conditions for eligibility are often determined on a comparison of a snapshot right now. What do these households look like? How do these households compare? How do the potential beneficiaries compare 
on a number of metrics that are related with well-being, related with economic development, related with access, etc. Um, right. But of course, you know, so, so the, these access variables or these metrics are not necessarily going to um, uh, show this distinction between poverty of access or, or lack of access for family that has three very young kids or lack of access for family, as you described, with young adults. Mm -hmm. Lack of access is lack, it's measured as lack of access. And so these two families are going to be comparable as far as some of our metrics are concerned when we're trying to select who qualifies for the program. So maybe um, these outcomes are going to inform some of the um, targeting mechanisms or targeting decisions that go into uh, the programming here or the design of who this assistance is geared towards. And as more and more of our, our, of our research will dig into some of these potential mechanisms, how is it that specifically that cash is um, helping us avert child labor or reduce child labor? How is it that this is, this is another finding that we, that we also mm -hmm. uh, can, uh, can verify? We find that um, there's a significant switch from informal schooling to formal schooling among school-aged children wow. for beneficiary households. And, wow. um, and I think, I think the, 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 uh, what gives us confidence in the results is that we're comparing our um, beneficiary households to households that otherwise look extremely similar, who just mm -hmm. happened very for, for accident not to have qualified for the program so these right. are programs that so these are two households that have very similar profiles in uh, uh in terms of mm -hmm. most metrics that we care about and in terms of most social demographics but who happened for an administrative reason not to have qualified and so there we're comparing hopefully apples to apples and we're seeing that the, the program is making families able to switch their kids education from informal to formal and wow. to keep their kids in school rather than sending them to work, to keep their girls in school or at home rather than marrying them off. And these wow. three outcomes alone, I think, are um, of paramount importance. Wow. So we only have about three minutes, three, four minutes left. Um, when you're dealing with uh, uh, economics in the, uh, in the Middle East and the Arab region and the wider Middle East, um, you always, I know from my years of interaction with researchers and, and economists, that you're always running into two issues. One is you, you, don't, you often don't have reliable data uh, mm -hmm. to start basing your work on. Um, and I know this is from studies we did at Isan Faris Institute at AUB years ago. When I was there, we did some work on poverty in, uh, in Lebanon and, and uh, assistance to poor families. Um, and we couldn't basically get an accurate figure of how many poor families were because they, they didn't, these figures didn't exist. But the other question, of course, is corruption. Uh, so on these two issues of, of accurate data and uh, the, the impact possibly of corruption in these programs, have you looked at any of these issues? Do you have any uh, results to share with us on those? Sure. Um, I completely sympathize with the challenges that you faced at the Islamabadis <laughs> Institute. And this has been a, a constant struggle. And I'm very sad to say that we have much greater ease in collecting our own data because we're, we've, been, mm -hmm. we've been in partnerships with UN agencies that allow us to collect our own data. In the case of Palestinian refugees in Lebanon with UNRWA and in the case of 
Iraqi and now Syrian refugees in Lebanon in partnership with UNHCR or other agencies um, because uh, th there has been reticence and resistance from the Lebanese state to allow us or to give us access to individual level data or micro level data for the Lebanese population or to give us even uh, the kinds of documents that we need in order for us to collect our own data uh, and do it in a representative. Them. We've been interested in working with these marginalized and with refugee populations and with vulnerable populations anyway. But part of the advantage here is that we also have partners that allow us to uh, collect our own data and therefore know the value and the validity and the quality and be able to improve and attest to the quality of our data. Wow. Um, so that, yeah, so that has actually, uh, I mean, it, and it is yeah. ironic that um, that we're unable to do that um, in the case of the Lebanese. Oh, the, the hurdles right. and the administrative and the bureaucratic hurdles are much, yeah. much more um, mm -hmm. overwhelming there. Um, so that that's been that's been part of the 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 confidence that we have with the data is that we've collected Good. it ourselves. Um, on corruption, again, because we have collected the data and because these agencies, at least in the context of the programs that we've been evaluating, have shared with us uh, minutia of uh, the, ad the administration and, and how these, the modality of these, of these payments and of the operation of these programs, we are again able to verify that this is what we see, the data do um, confirm the kind of operation that these programs describe. Mm -hmm. in um in in their uh in their uh, institutions their bureaucracies but also in their um sort in the literature around them as well Good. well those are two positive uh comments <laughs> to end the end the interview on we run out of time uh professor uh, nasreen salti of economics at the american university of beirut thank you so much for being with us thank you it's been a pleasure and thank you to the audience for listening in i'm rami khoury your host this is Professors at Work. Join us again next week at the same time in the same place. Bye for now.